Acts chapter 6. We're going to continue our study of Acts there. Uh, We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and so each week we study it. uh, And we hope to find truth and life in it because it is God's Word, and He brings truth and life. So we're getting close to the end of our study here in the book of Acts. We're going to get through chapter 8, and then we'll take a break for Advent, and, and we'll come back to Acts at some point and finish it up. Uh, but what we have learned so far as we looked at Acts is that uh, the church consists of all of those who are united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. That God has, has united us to him through his spirit and he has sent us, uh, in a, on a, he's given us an incredible mission, an incredible task, and that is to continue the ministry of Jesus through the power of the spirit to the ends of the earth. That's a pretty bold mission, isn't it? (laughs) So uh, that's the the mission that we're on, uh, and he has given us everything we need for that. Uh, He he has equipped the church with power and truth, uh, the life-giving message of the gospel. He's given us wholeness and boldness. And last week, we talked about how the gospel even gives gives us a a heroism, a heroicness that we wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, We studied the story of Peter and John, the apostles, being placed in a prison and then being freed by the angels and then going out and uh, proclaiming the gospel anyways, even though they were told not to proclaim it, they proclaimed it, uh, and they were beaten and told to stop, and they refused to do it. And it says that they continued to preach and teach the word of God wherever they went, and that that many more people came to salvation. And so we pick up the story there and we see that, that all these people coming to faith is actually going to cause a, a bit of a problem within the church. And the apostles are going to uh, solve that problem through the power of the Spirit. Uh, so here we go. We're going to read Acts 6. We're going to read 1 through 7. Big task this week. We're going to tackle chapter 6 and 7. Don't worry, we won't read all of it. Okay? We're just going to read some chunks of it. But we'll have it up on the PowerPoint. But you may want to keep your finger in your Bible to help you follow along. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." The word of God is more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and it's sweeter than the honey on a honeycomb. Let's give our attention to it. Uh, What is your family business? What's your family business? As I meditate on this text, that was a question uh, that that continued to to come up. And uh, the kids, the family and I, we watched a movie on Friday night that kind of made me think about this. We watched McFarlane USA. It's a cross-country movie with Kevin Costner. It's, it's a good one. Uh, I may or may not have cried at the end of it. Uh, it's about a, a, high, a high school football coach that gets fired from his job as a football coach, 
And the only job he can find is uh, a job as a science teacher and PE teacher in a small Hispanic uh, town in California. And so he goes there and pretty much immediately it's not going to work out with a football team. So he's got to find something else to do. And so he realizes that these kids are incredible runners. That they're, they're all fast because they're, they're fa- they're, their families pick crops from the field. And so every morning they have to go to the field to pick crops. Then they run to school. They do their schoolwork. Then they run back to the fields to pick crops at the end of the day. And then they go home. So it's made them incredible runners. So he puts together this cross-country team filled with these pickers. And, and eventually in the movie, there's this clash between him wanting them to run cross country and their dad needing them to pick in the fields. And so he, he realizes that if he's going to really minister to these kids, if he's going to really coach them up, he's got to figure out what life uh, as a picker is like. And so he, he, uh, he goes to the fields and he picks crops with this family all day long. He gets involved in the family business, and he says it's the hardest day of work he's ever done in his life. Their family business was picking, picking crops. Uh, For a hundred years, the Hatfield family business was farming crops in the Choska River bottoms of Coweta, Oklahoma. And that shriek ended, thanks to yours truly. (laughs) And now, the Hatfield business is ministering to God's people. Uh, The Hanson family business, my wife's family, uh, the the Hanson family is filled with teachers and scientists. It's also filled with churchmen and churchwomen. She comes from a long line of people who have dedicated their lives to serving in the church. What is your family business? I bet if you look back through your history, you would see some common themes, some common occupations that keep coming up. Well, I ask you that because I think this text uh, poses that question to us in terms of God's family. What is the family business in God's family? What is he about? What is the work of God's family? Right? So what you have in the gospel is the gospel gives us a new family. We are uh, saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and then we are filled with his spirit, and that spirit uh, transforms us into a child of God, and we take on the family business because we're filled with the Father's spirit. Right? So what is that family business? I think it's an important question because I think one of the things that's challenging for us in our modern age is because of technology, because of politics, because of uh, errant theology, because of our own sin, because of forces all over the world, we've kind of lost this idea of what the family business is in God's family. So this morning, I want you to see what the family business is from this passage. What I want you to see is that the Spirit calls us to minister to the gospel. It is that simple. The family business in God's family is ministering to the gospel. And there's three ways that we do that. The Spirit calls us to serve the gospel. The Spirit calls us to share the gospel. And the Spirit calls us to suffer for the gospel. We serve the gospel, we share the gospel, and we suffer for the gospel. 
Uh, kids after the service might be a great time to ask your parents what the family business is and to talk about what your family's role is in the process of sharing the gospel. So let's look at this together. First thing we see is the Spirit calls us to serve the gospel. So you have this problem. There's more and more coming, people coming to faith, and that means there's more and more widows who are coming into the church, and there's a group of Hellenist widows and a group of Hebrew widows, and, and for one reason or another, right, uh, one group of them, the Hellenists, are complaining because they're not getting as much of the daily distribution of food or finances or resources as the Hebrew women. So the apostles have a problem. How are they going to distribute these resources well? So the solution that they come up with is to choose seven godly men who are filled with wisdom and the Spirit to serve the tables while the apostles serve the word of the gospel. Uh, and, and it's interesting in here, uh, the word distribute means to serve. Right? And it's used a couple different times. It's used in the context of serving the tables, but it's also used in the context of serving the word. When the apostles are talking about preaching the word, right, and teaching the word, uh, they're talking about serving the word. And so you have two different ways that you can serve the gospel here. You can, serve the, you can serve the gospel by serving tables, and you can serve the gospel by serving the word. And so the seven that they appoint, including Stephen, help serve the tables. They make sure that the widows have proper food and resources that they need, and that frees up the apostles to serve the word of God through preaching and teaching and spreading the gospel. And what happens because of this distribution of resources? The word of God increases and many of the priests come to faith. Now that word priest there is really important because who were the people in the Old Testament who were supposed to minister to the poor? It was the priests of the temple. So what happened was, through, through some combination of this serving the tables and serving the word, the priests are seeing the gospel played out and they're hearing the gospel played out. They're seeing that they weren't doing the job they were supposed to be doing, but now the apostles and the church are, and this brings credibility to the faith, and so they come to the faith. They come to Jesus. So it's the spirit that is filled with these men with these gifts for serving the word and serving the tables, and the same spirit that fills the apostles and the seven fill us. They fill us with spiritual gifts to serve the word and to serve the table. And it, it has filled the church throughout the centuries. And this, 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 un, this unity of serving the table and serving the word has brought people to Christ for centuries. Uh, Julian the Apostate was a Roman emperor. In the fourth century, he regretted the progress of Christianity. And this is what he said. He said, atheism which was the Christian faith, that's what he called it, atheism, has been especially advanced through loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. Think about that. It's a scandal that there's not a single Jew that's a beggar. And that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. The gospel was spreading because they were doing such a good job of caring for their poor and the other poor. Uh, during the plagues, the Christians were known for being the people that stayed back in the city and took care of the sick while everybody else 
left. The Spirit of God called them to serve the Word and serve the tables, and the Spirit of God calls us to serve the Word and to serve the tables. How do we do that? Preaching, teaching, evangelism, counseling, discipleship. All those Word-oriented gifts are ways that we serve the Word. We, and, and you can focus on the, the spiritual needs, but not to the neglect of the physical needs. And the elders would be an example of officers in the church that head up the service of the word. But you also have the service of the table. There's administration, hospitality, helps, mercy ministry, service. These are all physical-oriented gifts that meet physical-oriented needs. But they also minister to our spirit. And they're represented in the office of deacon. But everybody in God's family, everybody who's filled with the Spirit of God is equipped with spiritual gifts for serving the church. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. That means that everybody here has a role to play in the family business of serving the gospel. Uh, Jewel did a wonderful job talking about restorative community. I loved it. It's great. Uh, One of the things that we've talked about a lot is that we want our church to be like a hospital, and when you go to a hospital, right, there's, there's people all over the hospital. They're doing different jobs, but they're all there to take care of the patient. So we want the church to be like that. Jesus is the great physician, right? The gospel is the great medicine. But everybody in here has a role to play in helping people get that gospel and experience it. Whether you're, you're setting up chairs this morning like the Woods family was, or you're, do, you're setting up communion like Julie John's, or you're working in the nursery like Julie Ireland, or you're, in, you're leading Sunday, you're, you're, not Sunday school, community group like Chris Suddeth, or you're playing with the kids. Like everybody has a role to play in, in seeing people experience the good news of the gospel. This is, a, this is an opportunity for everyone to come and serve the word and to serve the tables. Uh, at our church, uh, community groups are the first line of care. So we really want everybody involved in a community group or a small group if they can. That's our first line of how we care for each other. Our second line is the Mercy Ministry Team, right, headed up by Jay and Bethany and, and our other Mercy Ministry Team members. And then lastly would be the elders. Then we would be the third line of care for y'all. Um, we want to have as many people as possible involved in, in serving the word and serving the tables in our church. Steve and I, by nature, are doers, not delegators. So you'll have to be patient with us as we build ministry teams and as we learn how to delegate better. Um, but we want everybody in here to be a part of this mission. We want everybody in here to be a part of the family business of grace and peace, the family business of God's family, serving the word and serving tables. So that's the first thing we see is the Spirit calls us to serve the gospel. The second thing that we see is the Spirit calls us to share the gospel. Look back at um, Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. 
And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So you see, like Jesus, the religious leaders oppose Stephen. They don't like his preaching and teaching. They interrogate him. They accuse him. They trump up the charges by getting false witnesses to come and lie about him. They accuse him of speaking against God and Moses and the temple and the law. Right? What does Stephen do in his defense? How does he, how does he defend himself? He defends himself by sharing the gospel. Now, I'm not going to read all 48 verses of Stephen's defense, but I would encourage you to read it. It's a pretty incredible, uh, masterful way that he puts together the gospel. Uh, but I want to I just highlight how he shares the gospel. Okay? Uh, he, he, what he does is he meets them where they are. And then he shares with them the bad news about their self-righteousness and the good news about Christ's righteousness. The first thing he does is he meets them where they are and he shows them how God has always met his people where they are. Uh, he, he talks about Abraham and he says, God met Abraham in Mesopotamia. And then he talks about the patriarchs and he says, God met the patriarchs in Haran and Egypt. God met Moses in the burning bush. God met Israel in the wilderness. And eventually he met them in the tabernacle. And then he met them in the temple. What is he doing? He's saying God met his people where they were. And then he summarizes it by saying, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Stephen's saying, Look, guys, it's not just about Jerusalem and the temple. You're missing the point. God is going to meet his people wherever they are, and eventually what's about to happen is God is about to take the gospel everywhere. Not just in Jerusalem. He is going to take it everywhere. And in doing that, he begins to confront them about the bad news of their self-righteousness. He does that very explicitly in verse 51. How's this for the closing of a sermon? He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And nobody said amen at the end of that sermon. What was he doing? He was saying, look, guys, your salvation is not based on you being in Jerusalem, worshiping in the temple, because God can meet his people wherever he wants to meet them. And your salvation does not come from you keeping the law of God because you don't keep it. In fact, you have never kept it. Your family has always rejected the law of God. 
You have always killed the prophets. You have always ignored the priests and the sacrifices. You have no, you have no righteousness. You have no self-righteousness. But there's one who has come that does. There is a righteous one, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one that the temple pointed to, right? This is what he was saying. This is what he was teaching. They got him in so much trouble. As Jesus said when he was teaching, right, that, you're gonna, that they were going to kill the temple, and three days later he was going to rise again. They thought he was talking about the physical temple, but he was talking about his body, the temple, He's the fulfillment of the temple. He's the fulfillment of God coming to meet us where we are. Not only that, he was the fulfillment of the law, the sacrifices in the temple. When the people would come to the temple, what would they do? They would bring their sacrifices. They'd bring a goat or a bird or a lamb, and they would place their hand on that animal, and it was symbolic of their sin going to that animal. Then the priest would sacrifice that animal. He would take it into the holiest of holies and he would sprinkle the blood on the altar. Symbolic of that animal paying the price for their sin. They did this ritual all the time, or they were supposed to anyways. They didn't get it. They never saw that it was their sin going on the animal and that was foreshadowing their sin going on to Jesus and him paying for their sins himself on the cross. See, they thought it was about their righteousness and what God was saying all the time is, no, it's about Christ's righteousness. Your self-righteousness is nothing. It is all about Christ's righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God. So God meets people where they are. God shows them the bad news about their self-righteousness. And he shows them the good news about the righteousness of Christ. That is the gospel. That is the message that changed you and I. At some point in our lives, we looked up and realized that we couldn't save ourselves. There was nothing that we could do that would, save our, that would save us. It wasn't about our good works. It wasn't about our good looks. It wasn't about our intelligence. It wasn't about our political party or our nationality or our football team or anything else. Nothing. Nothing could rescue us from the sin and misery in this world except for Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? That's the message of the gospel. And what God calls us to do is to go meet people where they are and to take that message to them. He calls us to go to irreligious people doing irreligious things and to love them, to meet them where they are and to show them a new righteousness, a new way. Uh, I read an article this week. Uh, it was on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, it was about a, man, a young man who his whole life changed on Halloween of 1998, uh, Halloween 1998, he was going to throw a massive party uh, with all the things that massive parties have. He was a college student at the time, and so he invited all of his friends, and one of the friends he invited was one of his high school buddies. And when his high school buddies showed up, he walked into, his, he, he, he walked into the house, and uh, this guy's name was Garrett. Garrett brought him back to his bedroom. He said, look, man, I have... Everything you could want here, you're going to have an amazing Halloween party. It's going to be awesome. And his buddy looked at him and said, man, I just need to let you know that I gave my life to Christ. 
and I'm here to be with you, but I'm not going to do any of the things that you're providing for me. And the guy was like, what? You're not going to do this and this and this? And he was like, nothing. I'm not going to do any of it, but I'm going to, hear, I'm going to be here and be with you. Maybe not the most wise thing to do, but that's what he did. He sat there all night at the party and did not participate in all of those extracurricular activities with his friends. Party ends, Garrett, Garrett, you know, he, he leaves, the days and months pass, Garrett is thinking and thinking and thinking about his friend, and he cannot get it out of his head. Garrett thought to himself, you know what, I'm not a bad person, I just want to have a good time, I just want to have a little fun, I'm just going to sow my wild oats and live it up, it's fine, right? But he can't get this message of the gospel out of his head that his friend shared with him. And so he calls up his friend. He says, I can't, get, I can't get this out of my head. Like, I don't understand what's happened to you. And so his, his friend met with him again. And he said, when you called me, I was praying for you in that moment that you would believe the gospel. And he shared the gospel with him again. And Garrett gave his life to Christ and became a Christian. And now he's a pastor and a writer for the Gospel Coalition. He's the one who wrote the article. We meet people where they are and we show them the good news about the righteousness of Christ. If they're irreligious, and we meet religious people where they are and we show them the good news about the righteousness of Christ. I heard another story this week about a, a woman who went to worship on Easter and she was a, she was a good person. She was a hardworking, red-blooded American and she went, to, she went to church on Christmas and Easter, right? She was a CEO Christian. And she went to Easter that Christmas. She went to the service and she heard the gospel preached. She heard the pastor talk about, it's not about your works. It's not about what you do. It's not about being, you're not saved based on being a good, red-blooded, hardworking American. You're saved based on the righteousness of Christ. She walked out of that service that night with tears streaming down her face. She looked at her husband and said, I have known about Jesus my entire life but I have never known Jesus until today. She went to the pastor's class for the next six weeks, and then she joined the church and gave her life to Christ. The family business is sharing the gospel of Jesus. We meet people where they are. We share the bad news about our self-righteousness and the good news about Christ's righteousness. That's the family business. And the last thing we see is the family business calls us to suffer for the gospel because not everyone is going to receive that gospel message and they're not going to receive us giving it. Look at Acts 7, starting in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him, rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen suffered for the gospel to the point of death. When you look at this passage, you can't help but notice all the parallels between Jesus' death and Stephen's death, right? 
Stephen preached the word and served others like Jesus. Stephen was unjustly accused and convicted on false charges like Jesus. Stephen was given capital punishment like Jesus. Stephen gave up his spirit like Jesus. Stephen forgave his killers like Jesus. Stephen fell asleep only to wake up in the arms of his heavenly father like Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised though. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. And Paul says, anyone who lives a godly life will be persecuted. Anyone. If we are doing the family business of serving the word and serving tables, if we're doing the family business of sharing the gospel, we are going to experience persecution. It is going to happen. Don't listen to anyone who tells you otherwise. If there's anyone who tells you that because you're a Christian, you're not going to experience suffering and you're not going to experience persecution, that is not the gospel. That is not the voice of Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are you who suffer for righteousness' sake. Not obnoxiousness' sake, but righteousness' sake. We will suffer persecution. The Spirit calls us to suffer for the gospel. What does it look like to suffer for the gospel? So most of us, hopefully, are not going to be in the position that Stephen was in, but we might be. It's going to look like us laying down our self-righteousness to our spouse. It's going to look like us being obedient to Christ when it comes to a party or to our work practices or to our internet usage. It's going to look like us sharing the gospel with someone in wisdom and love and grace and kindness who may reject us. It's going to look like us serving the word and serving tables. It is going to look like us getting on our knees sometimes and washing people's feet. The Spirit calls us to die a thousand deaths at our home, at work, at school, in our community. But it's those deaths that God uses to bring life to others. On January 8th, 1956, five Christian missionaries were speared to death in a jungle for their faith. Their bodies were left floating in a river and Time Magazine showed a picture of it. And that picture of Jim Elliott and his friends inspired thousands and thousands of people to be missionaries, to take the Gospels to the ends of the earth. And Jim Elliott was quoted as saying, He who is no fool, he is no fool to give up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. You are no fool to give up your life for the sake of the gospel because you can't lose it because of what Christ has done for you. And God uses our suffering for the gospel to bring life to others. That's the family business. That's what we do. We minister the gospel. We minister by serving the tables, by sharing the gospel, and by suffering for the gospel even to the point of death. Now, how do we get the power to do that? (laughs) It comes through the Holy Spirit. 
And it comes through Jesus, who's our great high priest. Now, I thought was fascinating about this. I've read this probably 10 times this week, and it didn't hit me until this morning when I read it again, that when Jesus was on the cross, one of the things he said was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He looked up from the cross and didn't see anything. So that Stephen, when he looked up from his cross, what did he see? He saw Jesus standing. The Bible always talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. In this situation, he was standing. Why was he standing? He was waiting to receive Stephen. And he's waiting to receive you and I. That's where you get the motivation. That's where you get the power. That's how you carry out the family business. So let's pray that God would help us do that.